Hello and welcome to the Lebanese Politics Podcast. My name is Nizar Hassan, joined as usual by Benjamin Red. How are you, Ben? I'm doing good. I, I'm happy to be back, excited to be back. Uh, we we were gone for like uh, a couple of weeks and, and it really was kind of uh, inopportune timing for the news uh, because so much stuff was going on. Uh, so we've got just an action-packed uh, episode <laughs> going on ahead uh, for you guys this week. I mean, we have basically three weeks of news to cover, and there was a there was a whole lot going on. So I'm excited to get into it. Yeah, it's going to be challenging doing this in uh, in less than an hour, but we're not going to be focusing on one thing today. Um, we're going to be talking about many things: the economy, things related to political uh, games among the mainstream or the establishment parties. Uh, but it's going to be like more of a, of a news episode. Uh, so that's kind of a disclosure. We'll get into some good discussions, I'm sure. Uh, but yeah, there's so much that we're just not going to be able to do all of it or get as in-depth probably on some of it as uh, we would like to do. Uh, but anyway, let's get to it. Uh, first off, very quick update on the coronavirus here. Uh, there, We are seeing numbers rise. They, they continue to rise. So a few weeks back when we last left you, the number of uh, infections was around 1,300. Um, and that's basically grown by increasing amounts o- over the last three weeks. Um, an, an average of about 130 new cases, uh, a new case detections per week. Last week saw uh, 183 new cases, uh, pulling us up to 1,719 cases total. And and so what, what essentially we're seeing here is not some sort of huge spike or huge second wave like uh, we see in certain other countries or potentially see in certain other countries around the globe, but definitely a continued increase that means that we, we do need to keep watching this and we do need to stay vigilant about it. And speaking of staying vigilant, you know, and keeping watching it, uh, of it, that's re- related very much to testing, which is not quite up to the level probably that we want it to be. Uh, according to Fatima Asayah, uh, who is a researcher, in June, through the 22nd of June, there were 1,541 tests per day uh, in Lebanon, which she said was not enough. Now, I think they may have upped that a little bit since then, but we definitely still do need more testing. But overall, we're not we're not doing terrible. We, we don't see like a huge spike or anything like that. Total deaths is still uh, just 33, thankfully, in the country. Uh, of course, we are still under a general mobilization, um, and a lot of places are still shut down. A lot of people still aren't going out or not going out as much as they used to. But otherwise, the country really is starting to feel a lot more open, and, and people seem to be going out quite a bit more than they were you know, three weeks ago. Yeah, indeed. I mean, for some people... Things are getting back to normal. You you go around Beirut, for example, you go around to Marm Khail on a Monday or Tuesday night, you find a lot of people hanging out in the bars and the pubs. So this is happening. At the same time, there is like, generally, there is so little traffic in the country compared to usual days. You know, there is, uh, there isn't really so much activity happening. So when you see that, you wonder whether this is really people still taking precautions uh, for Corona purposes or whether this is the economic crisis manifesting in just basically the death of economic activity. Because, you know, when people are moving, they like traffic tells you a lot about economic activity. So I would um, I would be I would be you know careful about, you know, portraying things as normal because they are absolutely uh, strange to me. For example, someone who has lived his uh, whole life in Beirut to have so little activity and so little traffic. But in terms of COVID precautions, things are much more relaxed for sure. Absolutely. Uh, and, and we're going to be talking about the economic matters for a lengthy portion of the show in a minute. Uh, but first off, we do need to mention what happened with the Syria Caesar sanctions um, and with the dust up with the American ambassador here uh, just this past week. Yeah. So to begin with uh, Caesar law, there was this whole Basically, it took over public discourse and politics for a couple of days, for a few days in Lebanon, uh, as part of what has been talked about as kind of the U.S. pressure on Syria and Hezbollah and the, you know, their axis with Iran, etc. Uh, the basics about the Caesar law, just briefly, 
So the bill was uh, part of the defense policy bill approved by the U.S. Congress and Trump, uh, and uh, it just came into effect. Uh, and what it does is basically it contains sanctions on Syrian central bank officials, but specifically if the U.S. Treasury determines that they they pose money laundering concerns, this is kind of the justification. And it puts sanctions on all individuals and entities, uh, including countries like states as well as companies uh, that engage in transactions with the Syrian government. This is like the biggest part of the law, and this is why it concerns Lebanon and other countries uh, so much. Yeah, but but we haven't quite seen what the Americans are going to do with this yet, right? So so we know that this does sort of broaden the scope to to some degree of the sanctions tools available to the U.S. Treasury Department. But we also know that, you know, before Caesar was passed, th- there were entities that OFAC, the, the office of the Treasury that does these things, that they hadn't gone after yet. So they weren't already, you know, using all of the sanctions that they possibly could under existing legislation and existing executive orders. This is just like another layer of of law coming on top of that, giving them even more discretion, I guess, uh, widening the bounds a little bit further to sanction more people. So the question here, I, I think, is more one of, well, what is going to happen here? How, how much is the U.S. really going to use this? And to me, this signals the fact that the Congress passed this and OFAC has now started implementing this uh, uh, and the State Department has started implementing this, that, I mean, this is this is definitely a sign that they're signaling to us that they are going to step up sanctions, which is what, you know, Pompeo and others have been saying. So, so this is definitely a signal in that direction, but we don't know to what degree that's going to exist. They have released, you know, a list of names and it didn't really affect Lebanon too much. I think there was one Lebanese entity, if I'm not mistaken, uh, it, and it wasn't like a huge name, you know, it wasn't a Gibran Basile or, uh, uh, you know, Nabi Berri or something like that. Yeah, we haven't seen the, the effect or, or the manifestation of uh, these sanctions in terms of targeting high level uh, politicians in Lebanon, for sure. But a lot of people have been talking about the potential impact of the Caesar law uh, if it's fully implemented uh, on Lebanon, but also on other countries, because it states, you know, uh, basically engaging with the Syrian government can take so many forms and uh, it makes the circle of sanctions very wide. Like they can, uh, they have the, the option of of sanctioning people based on a variety of activities that they might have uh, engaged in with the Syrian government. But also they specify things like, you know, those who sell military a- aircraft to be used in Syria by local or foreign armies, those who uh, work with the Syrian government's oil sector, offer construction services. So basically it's trying to, uh, it's quite an escalated kind of, uh, of unilateral action because it targets so many actors that you know the United States is not at a state of war with or at a state of uh, escalated military conflict with uh, that might have been interested in participating in the Syrian construction uh, process. In Lebanon specifically, a lot of companies are, we're, look, we're keeping an eye on Syria so that, you know, maybe it's, a, it's, it's a, like a, a line of oxygen for the Lebanese economy after this, after the uh, during the reconstruction phase, especially in terms of real estate development and engineering and other services, this is no longer that attractive. Uh, but also for a variety of reasons, Lebanese businessmen might not find a lot of room for working in Syria. But specifically in terms of the sanctions, uh, they will target these sectors. They will be impacting also the financial sectors and the connection between the Lebanese and the financial and the Syrian financial sectors. There is a variety of, of ways in which you know it might hurt Lebanese economy and Lebanese people who who have business in Syria in general. Absolutely, yeah. And and, uh, and speaking of signals uh, coming from Washington, we, we got another signal uh, this past week uh, from the U.S. ambassador to Lebanon, Dorothy Shea. Uh, she she had this interview with Al Hadas, which is a news channel uh, under Al Arabiye, um, and and she said that uh, she didn't really say anything new U.S. policy wise to my ear. Uh, you know, she said the U.S. has grave uh, has uh, grave concerns about Hezbollah's role in the government. She accused the party of siphoning off a whole bunch of uh, money that should have gone to state services instead. 
reading between the lines, it seemed as though she was sort of throwing kind of the blame for the financial collapse a lot on Hezbollah's shoulders, which is something that we've seen a lot in the past week, uh, which I think is really sort of bizarre and not supported by the facts in any way whatsoever. You know, if you're going to blame someone for robbing the state blind, you've got to go to everybody for sure. Hezbollah is not in, you know, at, at the top of, of, of that list. Other uh, Zayims and parties are. Yeah, I mean, she, she said that Hezbollah sucks out billions of dollars from the Lebanese economy. And, you know, it's, it's just part of the talking point about Hezbollah that, you know, it takes money from Lebanon and it sends it abroad, etc. I mean, I'm not an expert on Hezbollah's political economy, but maybe we'll have an episode on that uh, one day, actually, because there's a nice book uh, about that. The, the thing is that Hezbollah has a lot of businesses in Lebanon, right? And when he gets money from abroad, he gets it to fund his networks and his businesses, etc. And it's just very mysterious and not very uh, based on facts to say that Hezbollah has interest in bringing in the dollars to Lebanon and, you know, sucking them out and sending them somewhere else. This is not doesn't make sense, right? So this talking point is is very weak and also no one buys in Lebanon no one buys the idea I think that Hezbollah is responsible for the financial crisis but unfortunately recently with a lot of mobilized anti-Hezbollah mobilization by you know previously called March 14 forces it's becoming more and more common to hear these things you know that you know the the direct cause of the financial crisis is Hezbollah and this I think is a purely American talking point on the other hand, obviously, the role of Hezbollah in maintaining the establishment and protecting it, that's completely thats something completely different. 100%. So yeah, anyway, Hezbollah hit back at the ambassador um, suing and getting a judge to ban her somehow from speaking to the media because she was supposedly, you know, interfering in domestic affairs, which is interesting. I, I believe uh, this goes against the Vienna convention, according to a tweet from Liz Sly. Uh, and, uh, and and also, the, the other thing is that it's not just against the ambassador, this order, it's also against media organizations, right? Media will be fined $200,000 and stop from working for a year if they violate this order. Don't talk to Dorothy Shea. Yeah, it's such a ridiculous decision. I mean, it was so shocking and how ridiculous it is. It sounds like, you know, this one of these decisions that is purely for theatrics and has absolutely no potential for implementation. Like the M MTV, one of the like uh, most, you know, anti-Hezbollah Lebanese TV channels, but probably the biggest one in terms of the number of viewers, uh, basically the intentionally violated the decision on the same night they went out in their uh, prime uh, time news in the evening and they said we will violate your decision today uh, and they interviewed or they basically broadcasted the uh, soundbite from the from the ambassador so this is one of the decisions that you know are taken i think one, for one of two reasons either just because this judge is an attention seeker and he's trying to make a name for himself and you know to prove his his credentials to uh, to Hezbollah or if Hezbollah gave him the green light or or commanded him to do this this would be like uh, um, quite interesting as a development because i haven't seen this happen before in the same way and uh, it would be weird that Hezbollah is uh, considers this a valid type tactics uh, to to use i would be really surprised if this is the case but we should also note that this comes after many many prosecutions of several individuals under the pretext of collaborating with israel and that have caused a lot of uh, controversy in the last few weeks first there was uh, kinda khatib who is a, a, an activist known on social media who is quite anti hezbollah in, his, in her politics she's been uh, uh, charged and is now being prosecuted for visiting uh, the West Bank and for having, you know, relationships with Israelis. And then there was Sayyid Ali Al-Amin, who is a Shiite clerk, who is very critical of Hezbollah, who has also been prosecuted based on uh, some meeting, some religious summit, like peace summit that he attended in Bahrain at some point, And there was an Israeli rabbi there. So there was there is a movement and people are are seriously concerned about Hezbollah and of using the judiciary to silence criticism of it. Yeah, I think everything about this Dorothy Shea episode is just kind of stupid. 
<laughs> you know, uh, what what the ambassador herself did to me doesn't strike does it doesn't strike me as something. Uh, that, that's a, a good way to get your message across. Uh, U.S. ambassadors in Lebanon tend to do better, especially recently when they don't get in the news, when they're working behind the scenes, when they do grab those headlines, it's usually a bad thing. Um, and so when, you know, Dorothy Shea is new in town, we basically, this is, you know, the second big thing that we have out of her after the, you know, rather jaw-dropping airlift of uh, Amr Fahouri, uh, the alleged war criminal from the U.S. Embassy, basically the United States protecting uh, a, 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 an alleged uh, war criminal uh, from facing any sort of justice. You know, that was number one. Uh, that didn't look good for her then. And this, I, I don't think it looks that great for her right now, honestly, either. Um, it's almost like we have a little mini Mike Pompeo, our, our very own here in Lebanon. Um, and and parroting these you know sort of ridiculous points that sort of put all of the blame for all of the country's woes on Hezbollah, it just it, it's not credible at all. Uh, uh, it, I mean, even for people who are very anti-Hezbollah, you you can't convince them that all of the problems in the country are due to the party. Yeah, and and I have another another serious criticism of uh, of this ambassador. Why are you reading from a script during an interview? This is like, I mean, she didn't say that. She, I mean, it's not uh, confirmed. But if you watch the interview, she's basically stopping on punctuations like she's a robot and she's reading everything from the screen, as it's obvious from her eyes. And it just all seems so fake. And it seems like, you know, she has all the questions in advance and she's just, it's just an opportunity to say all the talking point that she has. It looks bad for, for the TV channel and it doesn't look good to her for her as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, anybody in the media out there, if you have the opportunity to uh, interview any ambassador, ask them hard questions and don't let them require you to submit your questions in advance. That is rule number one, dealing with embassies. And everything should be on the table, right? And in addition as well on Hezbollah's, for Hezbollah's part, you know, I, I agree with you, that's very problematic for free speech, what they've done, but also has the Hezbollah command ever heard of the internet? This is just so laughable that they would try to do that in this day and age. I mean, it, it really makes them look uh, out of touch, I think. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I completely agree. I mean, you can say whatever you want uh, on all kinds of online TV channels and uh, on media channels and just restricting TVs is not is not enough. It's going to give them it's also going to give the ambassador more attention. Right, right, exactly. The Streisand effect. Anyone, anyway. Uh, I, I think we. I think that's enough on that topic, Nizar. Uh, shall we talk about the big, uh, the the really big story uh, over the past three weeks, which, which is the economic collapse? Yeah. So the lira has been on a free fall, like the free, like the economy of Lebanon, as per the government's plan. Three weeks ago, it was around four thousand uh, lira per dollar. Now it's around 7,500 up to 8,000 today and yesterday. And there was, uh, you know, there was a time on, on 11 June when it kind of uh, did like a slide. Uh, so it lost maybe a quarter of its value in, uh, in one or two days. This was like a, a very interesting day and, and a lot of people became kind of started panicking about it because like it was going, it was losing value too fast to be just, you know, a result of you know organic demand versus supply processes etc uh, anyway now it's around seven to eight five hundred the this it, it varies around among regions etc but just to give an idea okay so the dollar before was 1500 this means that probably any imported product that you're buying today is six times more expensive or five times more expensive than it used to be uh, so and and when we say we talk about Lebanon, as we've said before, it's a country that relies almost totally on on imports for uh, its consumption. So you can imagine how much how much of an increase in in uh, in prices of, of of goods that we use that is. So how much real inflation that uh, targets people? Yeah, a hundred percent. And and this this whole thing, you know, it it started out on that Thursday on June eleventh with this slide to 5,000 and there were these rumors that it was as high as 7,000 and everything. This came as well at the same time, I, I just want to mention the situation in Syria, 
right? Syria is also going through a very difficult economic time in the past few weeks. You know, you've seen a whole lot of of, of problems uh, with uh, supplies and shops, and and the Syrian lira itself also on another slide, losing a lot of value. And so there was a lot of questions as to well, how much is the Syrian situation affecting Lebanon? Uh, and we don't. I don't think that we have. A, a clear, you know, ironclad answer on that. Certainly there are effects because the countries are intertwined in so many ways. Um, but quantifying that, I think, would be very difficult. But I mean, regardless, this whole, this sort of Thursday event sort of set off like the latest continued slide of uh, the lira that we're still in, it seems right now. And, you know, there were there were protests that broke out on Thursday and the politicians all got together on Friday and they agreed OBDL is going to start intervening in the market to try to support the price of the pound. And so it did that, but that didn't really seem to have an effect. And so we saw the rate just continue to climb and continue to climb. And we don't know where it's going to end. It's it's become something that, uh, un- unfortunately, uh, as well as you mentioned, we're we're starting to see in prices. Uh, so uh, the the uh, CPI for May came out, and we saw food prices for May had increased 190 percent. That's one nine zero percent over a year earlier. General just consumer prices as well uh, were up something, I think, like uh, 56% uh, year on year. Um, and so we're, we're seeing the lira is not just being devalued in this like theoretical, you know, dollar market uh, where you're exchanging currency. No, it's also having it, it is really, really starting to catch up uh, on the ground with your lira buying less than it used to, significantly less. Yeah, as you're saying, uh, Lira can't buy you so many things, and some people are worried about it, including the bakeries, which basically stopped selling bread to shops uh, recently on on Saturday, uh, because they said the cost of production of bread has gone up, although the wheat that they use is subsidized with the government, but the other material and the cost of maintenance of the machines, etc., is all uh, getting more expensive with the with the fall depreciation of the lira, right? So this created long queues of people all over Lebanon going straight to the bakeries because they can't find any bread in the shops and waiting in long long lines to get bread, which wasn't a very pleasant uh, scene for people who have uh, lived through the Lebanese civil war when this basically last happened as far as i know yeah yeah exactly so so amid all of this in this huge you know financial catastrophe that we are witnessing before our very eyes what have the politicians been doing so th- this is uh, kind of instructive right so a few weeks back the day before that thursday actually where we saw this big slide we we actually had a huge round of appointments approved by the cabinet. So what the politicians were doing up to this point, remember IMF negotiations had been going on, the lira had already, you know, lost, uh, you know, 60% of its value, etc, etc. But what the politicians were putting their efforts into, it it seems was more on the level of appointments, uh, sort of divvying up the pie. Uh, And and there were two major batches of appointments that had been causing some problems and, and making it hard to get things done in the cabinet. And one of those was uh, the judicial appointments. Those were actually signed off on. The the justice minister signed off on them. Hassan Diab, the prime minister, signed off of them. And, and then it went to the president, Michel Aoun. And he said, no, I don't like it. We're not going to do that. And these appointments, these judicial appointments, reportedly, they sort of sidelined the Aounis. And reportedly, the reason that Michel Aoun vetoed the appointments is because it wasn't good for his party. Now, also, Talal Arslan was unhappy about appointments reportedly as well. But, you know, it doesn't really matter at this point because they sort of have to go back to the drawing board and do the appointments over again now. The other set of appointments was actually made. It was made on that Wednesday. And this was administrative and financial appointments, including uh, appointments that have been really long overdue, like uh, the BDL vice governors. They were appointed. Uh, The Banking Control Commission was appointed. The government's commissioner uh, to BDL uh, was appointed. Uh, someone was appointed to the Special Investigations Commission. 
Capital Markets Authority, as well as a, a number of sort of administrative appointments. Uh, the Beirut governor, uh, Marwan Aboud, supported by the FPM, was, apport- uh, was appointed. The governor of Kisruin Jbeil, a new province, which was recently legislated, I think in 2017, but has no implementing decrees, was uh, they appointed uh, a governor for that province, which raised some some questions administrative-wise, as well as uh, a number of directors general uh, at the Economy Ministry, the DG of Investment at, uh, at the Energy Ministry, um, and the director general of uh, the Grains and Sugar Beets uh, entity, as well as the head of the Civil Service Board. Um, so all of these things were sort of, uh, or a lot of these things were a long time coming. Um, there were a lot of questions, I think, on the financial side of things, exactly who was getting appointed. A lot of people complained about these appointments, whether from a political uh, angle or from just sort of a, why are you appointing a bunch of the same bankers club to oversee the bankers? Uh, because a lot of these appointments, they they were drawn you know, from the pool of available bankers here in Lebanon. That doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad thing, right? Because you do want people with experience uh, who know what they're doing in these positions. You know, you know, take someone like Marwan Mikhail, for instance. He was appointed to the uh, Banking Control Commission. Marwan is uh, a friend on the show. He he's been on the show before. You may agree or disagree with him, but there's. Uh, you know, no debating the fact that he is very well informed. And uh, if he argues for something, then he probably has good reasons for believing it. Whether you agree with those or not is another story. Yeah, it's clear that they couldn't be as outrageous as they used to be in terms of the appointments, but we're yet to see whether the people who are appointed appointed in these different entities will actually be playing an active role in, you know, you know making sure the banking sector is, is abiding by by the rules making sure that BDL is governed correctly, etc. Things that are quite important in, the, in this time. Uh, we'll see how that goes. But for sure, what no one should have any you know, illusions about is that it was merit was probably a factor in most of the appointments. Uh, I would say that, but it was sectarian pie sharing you know, dynamics that govern the whole thing as usual. There is nothing different with this government and, you know, Michelle Aoun's term, whatever, all of this time, there's nothing different from the, from the previous times and the previous presidencies and governments. Everything is still done in the same way. Every sectarian leader chooses their own share relating to, you know, relative to their size in parliament and in the state, etc. And and it seems that a lot of the criticism of these appointments also came from just like political calculations and sectarian calculations. Suleiman Frangie kept his two ministers out of that Wednesday cabinet meeting specifically because he was angry that uh, that, that he didn't get the people that he wanted uh, in that appointment slate. And and it seems overall, if you believe them, you know it seems overall that the Aounis did sort of get their way in in these appointments. Yeah, I mean, uh, given what we know about uh, Gibran Basile and his way of, you know, approaching these things, I'm I'm quite confident that he got as much as he can, you know. (laughs) The FPM has not been a party that, you know, is easy on these things or so tolerant to their size being understated, etc. The other things that politicians were concerned with while the lira uh, is collapsing is actually uh, figuring out the losses, the losses of the Lebanese financial sector during, during the crisis in order to assess the choices in terms of policies of how to um, how to restructure the sector and BDL, etc. So a committee has been formed in parliament to evaluate these financial losses. It's headed by Ibrahim Kanaan, who is a high-level official at the Free Patriotic Movement, Basile's movement. And the numbers that uh, the committee adopted after its investigations is more similar to uh, BDL's estimations and the bank's estimations than the government's estimations, right? So the losses are um, were valued or estimated to be lower than what the government officially has officially published in its document and it's a plan and in the negotiations with the IMF. The report uh, that where you know they do the calculations and they tell us all the details is not public, so we can't really know how they reach those numbers. But there is a lot of criticism of the numbers by different people, mostly you know financial experts and nerds, etc. 
and saying that you know this whole disagreement about what are the sizes of the losses is stupid because it's all about the exchange rate this is mike azar's opinion for example and many people have made the same point that you know calculating the losses in lebanese pounds based on a variety of exchange rates will is, is not a very helpful exercise because it can't tell you exactly what the losses are um there are some technical you know questions to be resolved in that sense but the context is that the imf has said before that the government's numbers are you know in line with what we estimate so they kind of they hinted that the government's numbers are correct right and uh, we we thought that the government and bdl kind of came to, they came on the same page in terms of the numbers but then this debate was revived uh, this week and why does it matter why does this whole numbers thing matter it's basically because of the policy implications what what do we do if the losses are higher we give more responsibility or basically we take away more money and more future profit from the owners of the banks today this is the main issue banks have um, interest in saying the losses are lower than they are to push for less serious restructuring of the banking sector uh, and we know that the restructuring of the banking sector and of the central bank is perhaps today is, is the most controversial or the, the real area of conflict between Diab's government and his advisors and between uh, the banks and their allies during the negotiations with the IMF and in, uh, in domestic politics uh, generally, this is really one of the most important things because if the banks have to carry such a big responsibility as the government plan says, what will have to be done is probably a haircut for large depositors and uh, a bail-in by, by depositors in terms of, you know, people lose their deposits or lose part of the deposits, but they get instead stocks in the banks and the bank owners today can't possibly uh, be in favor of that policy so reducing the 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 size the estimations of the losses helps in preventing these policies that are harming harmful to their interests yeah uh it, and and like you say this is really interesting that this comes up basically at the same time that supposedly bdl and the ministry of finance were getting on the same page as far as numbers go uh suddenly there's a new numbers debate so it, if we look at the negotiations with the imf this obviously isn't a great sign, right? Because one of the problems before was that it seemed as though there were sort of that, that the IMF wasn't dealing with a single interlocutor, that they had to deal with two different Lebanese positions, one represented by the government and the Ministry of Finance, the other represented by BDL. And then as soon as these two partners sort of supposedly at least get on the same page, then we have this other question coming out of parliament that, uh, you know, again raises the question well, can the Lebanese even? agree amongst themselves on a you know a united bargaining position on this and as of right now it doesn't look too hopeful it, which is you know it casts the entirety of the, this potential IMF program into doubt and we saw a lot more doubt coming also in other ways over the past few weeks Henri Shaul uh, who is an advisor uh, to the government to the Ministry of Finance helping them out with the plan, uh, the restructuring plan uh, and the recovery plan, as well as the uh, handling the IMF, uh, he resigned, basically saying that the, the will uh, is not there, that the, the, the will to reform on the Lebanese side is, is not there. I think it was very powerful, this designation, because it pointed at the real problem. But we were talking about just two seconds ago, which is, you know, the banking sector and the restructuring of the banking sector. Henri uh, Shawil clearly stated that, you know, this it, the, the real obstacle is in what the IMF wants and the government wants, which is a total restructuring of BDL and the banks. And this is what uh, uh, is the real obstacle in terms of the negotiations. And I think, you know, um, just reflecting back on since October 17 on um, how much the, how much popular mobilization against the bank uh, there is and how much anger and frustration against the bank. Today, this is like kind of the counter-revolutionary moment for the banks because what is happening is that the banks are pushing the discourse stronger and stronger. They release their own plan, a very shitty plan, but still a plan with a very smart kind Kind of uh, a bunch of smart talking points uh, and they've been pushing these talking points through their uh, own people and also through like other politicians that support some of their suggestions including the suggestion of you know 
turning most of the depo- the the la- large deposits instead of like having a haircut turning them into funds uh, and investment funds that manage state assets privatized state assets and this is something that you know to me is is very crazy to think about today because basically what will happen is you will be giving uh, the financial oligarchy in Lebanon uh, state assets to be um, to to kind of save them in the future, so to, to accumulate profits in the future based on their losses today and giving them more power and more influence in the country. But in general, you see that the LF are supporting it. You see that Basile clearly came out and supported it. And uh, obviously Hariri supports it. And many people who are uh, who have been waiting for an opportunity for this kind of privatization to happen will support it. The banks are now pushing for the, the, the discourse and their policies. And they're kind of pressuring the government by uh, coming out against the IMF. And in, in some days, you know, people close to the banks and their lines of thinking are becoming suddenly critical of the IMF and saying maybe we don't need the IMF or maybe we we have to seek other options just because of this whole thing about restructuring uh, the banks and uh, you know their continuity as profiteers well that's the thing though and, and i think that that's a, a totally legitimate sentiment like well the, this IMF thing looks less and less likely to come through to me um, I, I think that there have always been clouds over this. You know, there's always been a really huge question about some sort of IMF bailout simply because, I mean, this isn't Egypt. We don't have a CC that is able to, you know, rule the entire country and implement really deeply unpopular reforms. So implementation has just always seemed sort of like, uh, you know, sort of this fear, fever dream or very least kind of uh, far-fetched given our current reality. Uh, and, and so that really does raise the question, well, what what do we do? What is plan B? If we if Lebanon does not get the bailout funds from the IMF, wh- what are we going to do? What What's going to happen? And and this came into even sharper relief uh, this past week. I, I believe it was Friday. The managing director, top person at the IMF, Kristalina Georgieva, uh, said that the uh, the biggest challenge was, you know, finding unity of purpose to actually do the reforms in Lebanon. Um, and so uh, re- this is one of the things that the IMF is very, very big on. They're not going to give you a bunch of money if they don't think that you can actually carry these things out. If there's not, if, if you can't credibly do that, then uh, then you're not going to see the money in the first place. And Georgieva said that there had been no breakthrough uh, thus far with Lebanon, uh, really calling into doubt the continuation of of these talks. Yeah, and what she said is also interesting to me. You have to watch the discourse of the IMF over this time during the negotiations, etc. The IMF has been, and people around it have been focusing on the issue of unity, right? What she said, uh, Georgieva, recently is uh, there isn't enough unity to support the necessary and painful reforms. And many people are have been talking about unity and unity. And to me, this is interesting. I don't think they're talking about the numbers, uh, getting the numbers straight in terms of BDL and the banks and the government. I don't think this is exactly what they mean. I think what they really mean is political unity and support for the government in, uh, in uh, negotiations with the IMF. I think the IMF are worried that uh, this government is not strong enough to represent to uh, or to basically to be carrying out the IMF program and doesn't have enough political support. And I've heard many analysts say, you know, people who are close to uh, the West, more or less in their politics say, yeah, this government can't take the, can't get a good IMF program. They can't really implement it. We need one, we need a government of national unity. Uh, meaning, you know, their presentation of the Western allies, Hariri and LF and others uh, in the government. So this is something to keep an eye on because the 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 government, the whole continuity of the government relies on getting money, be it from the IMF or from other people. Uh, but this is basically the whole raison d'etre of this government right now is basically just get, get money, uh, get cash inflow, basically. So if they don't get an IMF deal, the political class in Lebanon will have to resort to an alternative, which might be uh, a national unity government headed by someone close to Hariri or someone from his camp. 
who will be able to uh, use the international connections of this political camp. And uh, Hariri and people you know, in this camp should be, and I think are clearly, betting on the failure of this government in the negotiations with the IMF in order for that development to happen. So this is something that we might see uh, in the near future, in my opinion, if the government uh, fails with the, uh, reaching a deal soon. And, and speaking of unity of the government, I, I, I like that you mentioned that. Uh, one of the other things that happened just this past week was the supposed uh, summit up at Babda, where, you know, the president, it was supposed to be, you know, the president, prime minister, speaker of parliament, heads of blocks, former presidents, former prime ministers, uh, heads of political parties, basically all of the big guys up in the same room to tackle this. Well, like, Half of them didn't show up. Uh, probably more than half of them didn't show up. Uh, n- none of the former prime ministers showed up. Only one former president did, Michel Sleiman. And then you also had other notable exceptions, you know, like Frangier wasn't there, even though he's in the government. And basically, I think that that just sort of shows you the, the state of uh, Lebanon's politicians. They they really uh, are not on the same page right now. I, I think many of them are probably quite concerned about their future and about what's going on, but they haven't they certainly have not made any sort of decision to, you know, sort of band together and and show some sort of public unity. Yeah, it was it really Aun, I don't know if Aun expected it to be like a huge celebration of unity, but it was a bad joke in the end. Like no, basically a lot of people didn't attend, including people who I wouldn't expect, you know, to boycott this meeting. Anyway, one of the, the most interesting things to me in this meeting is that it was trying to portray the problem in Lebanon today as a problem of civil peace, right? As a problem of trying to prevent sectarian clashes. Oh, wow. As if, you know, people are waiting on the green lines with their weapons and just, you know, uh, waiting for the <laughs> occasion to attack each other. What is What happens, what is really happening today in Lebanon is basically class frustration. And if anything might happen, hopefully, it would be class warfare, not civil war, right? Because there is no ground for that. What is really happening is people are extremely frustrated with the deterioration of their living conditions and are rising uh, and are raising their voices in the streets and taking several actions obviously there are some political uh, interferences by establishment uh, parties or people who want to be in establishment but this is not this real thing that's happening today and to focus on that day on, on June 6 and the the clashes between protesters and uh, supporters of Hezbollah and Amal etc and what happened in Shia and Ayrmani which we talked about before which was really quite minor in my opinion it was not like the major development in the country it didn't affect what people are thinking and feeling uh, as a nation what is re- people are really concerned about is economic stuff and financial stuff and the government uh, not the government sorry and the officials Aoun and Diab and everyone involved in organizing the summit re- uh, decided that you know they're not going to talk about economic affairs so it's just a bad joke it's just really literally something that takes away so too many seconds from media and from this podcast for absolutely no purpose because it doesn't add anything to uh, to this it doesn't improve the situation in any way well, this is the uh, politicians, you know, view of coexistence and uh, t- tapping down any sort of sectarian tensions in the country. You will notice that there were 12 people who were at that meeting in Babda, and it was beautifully divided, six Christians, six Muslims. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, they can they can put on the show, but whether that actually shows anything is is another story. And two more things that politicians did this week kind of put the cherry on top of all of this. First of all, the government has decided uh, to sell three helicopters, the same helicopters that were the central of this whole uh, scandal during the wildfires in Lebanon, just a couple of days before the October 17 uh, uprising started. If you remember, there was this uh, this scandal about you know the government, the helicopters not being maintained because of the high costs, and then when we had the wildfires, we couldn't use them to extinguish wildfires. The government has now decided to sell them in an auction. Uh, because it, it says that maintaining them and finding parts for them is impossible. And they are also uh, selling five fighter jets, which are, you know, Hunter Hawker jets, quite old, and they say they can't find uh, spare parts for them. Anyway, 
uh, it was just you know a funny story because deciding to sell the helicopters now when people were protesting about them not um, operating them during the wildfires is just uh, funny but thankfully the government is also willing to buy new firefighting helicopters so they're not selling those and not doing anything uh, in return they will buy uh, according to what they said, they will be preparing a bid document to buy new fire, fire extinguishing uh, helicopters soon. That makes total sense. Sure. Why not? <laughs> and the last one, the last issue that really I think was the most outrageous one this week was the economy ministry saying that um, the government is looking very seriously at lifting subsidies of combustibles and of bread. Okay. And this created a lot of, you know, outrage generally in the country because the last thing that people uh, feel, you know, safe about today in terms of buying stuff is bread because this is the base, the base of a lot of food and also what poor people rely most on when they're eating and it's subsidized by the government so the price doesn't change although the size sometimes changes and stuff is, uh, they manipulate the weight etc but the overall the price of bread remains the same and Raul Nami the economy minister said that uh, they are considering lifting the subsidies and replacing them with targeted subsidies for the poor he didn't explain so much but Basile also uh, said during his his speech slash press talk this week that they will be replaced by vouchers and the main argument behind it uh, is that uh, that, that Raul Nami made is that we shouldn't subsidize the rich like I don't need he was talking about himself right he's a he's the former executive manager of Bank Med right this is a, a banker a high high level banker he said I don't need to be subsidized when I'm buying bread. So why is the government subsidizing me? So this is one of the most stupid, in my opinion, talking points that's always repeated by the right, uh, by the economic right, about uh, why universal programs and subsidies are bad. But it's stupid because rich people don't rely on bread as much as poor people do. Because when you look at the expenses of uh, poor people, the, the majority of their expenses is on food. Uh, whereas on rich, for rich people, it's a lot of other uh, things that come into account, a lot of luxury, a lot of uh, commitments, financial commitments related to having more and more money. So food expenses are almost nothing for rich people compared to what they are for poor people. So they are they are much more valuable to to poor people. First of all, and then second, how how can you possibly implement a targeted program of uh, bread subsidy? I mean, I don't know if there are any successful country uh, cases in other countries of that, but the way they are imagining it in terms of g giving vouchers to people, can you believe how that might work in Lebanon? Just imagine, Ben, with me for a second, that you know, <laughs> if you, if you want to buy bread, you go to the supermarket and you have to take a voucher with you, and especially in like local economies uh, where you know, people know each other and everything. Imagine like if you're going to a supermarket and you're saying like, sorry, I don't have a voucher today and the shop doesn't sell you bread because, you know, otherwise you have to pay 5,000 or 6,000 for it. And imagine with the exchange rate, the bread reaching, like a loaf bread reaching or whatever, 10,000. This is absolutely insane. Like literally that's the, the one of the only things that is safe and stable for poor people in Lebanon. And the other thing is that when Raul Nami received all of this backlash, rightfully so, in my opinion, he went on this, um, this I don't know, weird fantasy where he talked about lifting subsidies for foreigners in Lebanon. So only Lebanese people would be subsidized and not people who are not Lebanese. And uh, I, I mean, we have a saying in Arabic, you know, he was trying to, someone was trying to put, put kahal on the, on the eyelashes and then they they. I don't know, they ruined the eye or they they uh, ended the site and said, what is, this is doing is basically saying, okay, so if you want to buy bread, you have to show your ID. If you're Lebanese, you get the subsidized bread, uh, the subsidized price. And if you're not Lebanese, you pay the full price. So which means that all refugees should pay the full price of bread, which will vary with exchange rate. This is absolutely insane. Can you, believe, can you really, like, for a second accept the idea that refugees have to pay seven or eight thousand liras for erupted khubiz that's absolutely insane and it's also it's first of all it's racist and it's classes and all these things but it's also impossible to implement i mean 
for one, like I would never accept this reality and I would go and buy with my Lebanese passport, fancy Lebanese passport, buy bread and give it to foreigners. Everyone will do the same and there will businesses be businesses manipulating and exploiting foreigners to give them bread for high prices by Lebanese middlemen. This will happen. And this policy really, I mean, I don't know what Raul Nam is thinking. I think this is part of the pressure of the IMF in, in terms of reducing subsidies and the cost of subsidies for the private public sector. But what he's been talking about is absolutely insane. Yeah, and, and I think for the uh, on the fuel side of things, uh, there's a better argument for ending the subsidies because of you know you don't you want to preserve as many dollars as you can, and so you don't want to be using those dollars to buy fuel that's just going to get uh, smuggled into Syria, for instance. And so if you did end the subsidies, then there's you know no longer an economic incentive to smuggle fuel to Syria. So that cuts down on on that, and you can save. Uh, some dollars. I, I I I don't know that that is a convincing argument or not because, uh, I mean, people need that that subsidy uh, in a real way, and it would be extraordinarily disruptive if they ended it. But I I think there's probably a stronger argument on the fuel side than on yeah on the bread side. This idea of you know charging refugees uh, you know these sky high prices for bread. Um, it's just uh, really unworkable, I, I, I think, in the end. I wonder, you know, who's going to means test people to begin with? Uh, who's going to be saying yes or no? You probably have to hire 5,000 state employees just to do that. So who's going to hire them? And which Zaheem are they going to go for? I mean, it, 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 it is a sort of ridiculous, uh, a ridiculous solution. Yeah, and uh, you were talking about the fuel subsidy, and probably it's less, you know, outrageous in that sense. But we also have to think that Lebanon is in its worst economic moment ever. Uh, and combustibles are unfortunately one of the main engines of economic activity in Lebanon because the biggest sector is the trade sector. And trade is literally what most businesses do in terms of um, transporting uh, goods, in terms of delivery services. Everything that falls within trade uh, and tourism and everything relies on transportation. So, uh, and, like, freeing the prices from, like, removing the subsidy totally from prices, even if they are still giving the subsidy to taxi drivers, because they, uh, Raul Nami mentioned the, the idea of, you know, subsidizing taxi drivers. Even if they do that, uh, this will harm economic activity and with the austerity and the other measures that uh, are being implemented and will be implemented in the near future, this means more and more damage to uh, the economy, in my opinion. So uh, it's a very important factor to think about before establishing, and this is not even mentioning the the potential rise in the cost of transportation for normal citizens and residents of the country um, if the subsidies don't reach all public transport or, or basically semi-public transport that is being used today. Uh, so before establishing a real public transport network that uh, can be used for trade and for for transportation, or at least one that can be used for personal transportation. I think this policy of lifting subsidy will be a very regressive one. And on the macro scale, it will have a bad impact on the economy. Yeah. Uh, and I, I don't think, you know, the government that actually does this, I don't think is going to be in power much longer. Yeah, yeah. I think if the if the bread uh, subsidies are actually lifted, this might be a turning point in the fate of this government. Yeah. But we'll see. Who knows? I, I mean, the the news just keeps coming hot and heavy. So I mean, I mean, we'll see. The the past three weeks, and as as you can tell from the past uh, hour or so, we've been talking. Uh, I mean, I mean, they were uh, there was so much going on. But big picture, basically, it's still all about the economic collapse and how to deal with that. And who knows what's coming up this next week. Yeah, um, this has been nice. I mean, a lot of news and stuff, but it's uh, it's nice because. That they touch on so many things. Anyway, we'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, my name is Nizar Hassan. I'm Benjamin Red, and this has been the Lebanese Politics Podcast. Politics Podcast is brought to you by myself, Nizar Hassan, Benjamin Red, produced behind the scenes by Susan Wilson, and the music is by Omar Elfil.